I'm Claire Dawson of CC Solicitors in Dublin. I'm here with Meryl April of CM Murray in London, Maria Jose Sanchez Garcia of Augusta Abogados in Barcelona, and Mathilde Uwe Weil of Weil & Associate in Paris. We are all members of Inangard Executives, which is an international alliance specialising in advising senior executives and founders across the world. Its members are leading independent law firms located across Europe and Asia Pacific with specialist employment law experience and excellent reputations for advising clients in relation to their employment, directorship, incentive and shareholding issues. We're here today to talk about senior executives and COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic has seen huge changes in the way we work. And as employment lawyers, many of us have been advising employers throughout the pandemic on best practice. However, today we're shifting the focus slightly to look at the impact on senior executives and their perspective. Many of the issues are common across the jurisdictions, but the legal implications and the response may differ. So one of the things that I'm conscious of when I'm advising employers and individuals is the additional strain on senior people for lots of reasons, including the challenges of remote working, working from home, coupled with changed conditions for most businesses. And this means that senior people and professionals are under even more pressure to deliver in very challenging times. Um, Meryl, I'm going to come to you. What are the issues you've seen impacting senior executives in terms of well-being and what's your advice been? Thanks, Claire, and good morning. Yes, certainly some of those points that you've mentioned already, Claire, in terms of isolation with people working from home, the pressure of doing multiple Zoom calls and trying to make that personal connection working remotely. I think a couple of things also that we've seen are pre-lockdown issues surfacing. So maybe where somebody has, as a senior person, felt quite bullied by other people at the same level or by the organisation um, leadership. They've maybe been pushing on and trying to deal with those issues, but now that they've got a bit of time for reflection, they have been worrying about that impact on their health and their performance and their career trajectory and maybe raising grievances in relation to that. Another aspect which we're starting to see as we move out of lockdown and as the furlough schemes start to wind up and we look towards the autumn, people are having to plan redundancies. And I think one of the peculiar pressures on senior people is that good team leaders know their team very well. So they know perhaps if someone is planning to buy a house or you know, planning a major holiday or some other event that's costly and they know this person is quite likely on a on an at-risk of redundancy list, but they're not able to say anything. So lots of different issues, to be honest. And what obligations, Meryl, are you advising these, these executives that their employers have towards them? And what, what should employers be doing to support them? We've been advising people in relation to the employer's duty of care. Uh, and that in particular duty of care to ensure the health and safety of their workforce. I think historically this is something that people thought was relegated really to manufacturing plants and not particularly relevant to senior execs and city people. And so it's been a surprise to some executives to hear that this obligation extends to their mental health and, and welfare 
um, as well as to issues like, you know, a safe system of work in the more practical, physical sense. Also, we advise people frequently about disability discrimination because certainly where you have anxiety that can tip into depression, that can be a disability under the definition under the Equality Act. And that means that the employer has an obligation to make reasonable adjustments. And it's interesting this because I think we often think of reasonable adjustments as being less work, coming into work later or earlier, time off. But also I think that it could be a reasonable adjustment in some cases to hire additional support or different support, maybe tech support if people are struggling because um, they're not used to working at home without, you know, the IT department down the corridor. So I think it's important, and we've been advising people, that the reasonable adjustment needs to be something which corrects the disadvantage caused by the disability and therefore to be creative about that and to think about what you need and what you need to ask your employer for. And really, I think in summary, our advice has been there should be an open dialogue, but that should be supported by specialist input because often senior execs don't think about the support that's available to them in terms of employee assistance programs through their private medical. Um, and, And I think people are very nervous sometimes about accessing occupational health because they think maybe that doctor will be in the pocket of the employer. But actually, if you're going to approach your employer and ask for reasonable adjustments and ask for changes to make sure there's a safe system of work, you need support from a medical professional. And you can obviously go to your own GP or other private doctors, but it's also very valuable to go to occupational health and to make sure that your employer is aware of what you're suffering because the employee's awareness increases their obligation. Meryl, thanks so much. Those are all really interesting points and I think things that we've all been uh, grappling with. Mathilde, I know you've also been dealing with questions of well-being in France. Um, what are what are the key issues there? Well, I think it, it also goes back to the employer's duty of care, which is, of course, a, a European uh, rule. Uh, the risk here is obviously that you are expected now to be available around the clock. There is no more boundary between work and personal life, uh, especially with the new technologies. Uh, you are expected to be to be available uh, 24-7, which is bound to take a toll on anyone's mental health. And in this particular crisis, of course, this this difficulty adds up to the anxiety caused by the health crisis and, and the fear that you may feel for, for yourself and your and your family. Uh, so what, what you have to be aware of is that you must make sure that you can enjoy the minimum legal rest time, which is at least 11 hours between two uh, weekdays. And on the weekend, 35 hours of rest time uh, in a row. And for that, my advice would be to work with the employer on a work schedule with uh, a period of time during which uh, you are not available, which is especially challenging uh, when you're working with a team that is spread out on different time zones. In France, uh, this is a very important issue because it's a criminal risk for the employer if the workload uh, and the working conditions endanger the employee's health. And what we've seen a lot over the past few years is the rise of uh, burnout cases. It's it's really become a a hot topic uh, recently and even more now uh, with the crisis. 
to address uh, this issue. The government has made it easier since the beginning of the crisis to take uh, sick days, even though you're not sick, but just because you cannot be at home and telework uh, because, let's say, for example, you have to attend uh, to toddlers at home. So this possibility has been used. And uh, to make things easier, the government declared that uh, you receive sick allowances from, from day one of your sick leave, as opposed to normally you have to wait one or two days before you receive a sick allowance. And, and during those, those one or two days, you do not get any salary. So things have, have been made easier by the government. Partial activity has been developed a lot as well. But I would say that it, it's a possibility mostly for middle management and the lower level employees, but not really for uh, senior executives because they still have to, to work, especially in a challenging time of crisis. Yeah, that's it, isn't it, Mathilde? I mean, the weight is on the shoulders of the senior execs yes. and they, they kind yes. of, that's that's one of the key issues here when we're looking at well-being. They just have to, they have to keep going. Um, one of one of the things that we've seen in Ireland is, is pay cuts and other changes to terms and conditions as a result of the economic conditions arising from the pandemic. And I, I understand it, it has been the same in other jurisdictions. Maria, What's the approach you've seen in Spain and, and what advice are you giving to uh, senior people in relation to changes in terms and conditions? Okay, so in Spain, most of uh, the companies had put in place temporary redundancy procedures on the grounds of force majeure or for business reasons related to COVID-19. This has been the most common measure to reduce salaries and working hours with the right to receive unemployment benefits. Pay cuts so far have been also used, but mainly with employees in executive positions, either as an agreed measure or as a de facto measure. Pay cuts had so far affected the gross salary of certain months, not as a permanent measure, or the bonus accrued in last year to be paid in March, April of this year. But nowadays, companies are analyzing or even initiating procedures to permanently reduce salaries, as in former crises. As a general rule, in Spain, a company can unilaterally impose a pay cut, provided that there are objective grounds, such as a negative financial situation or a reduction in clients. And the company follows the specific legal procedure. There is a communication in writing explaining the grounds and the measure and a prior notice of at least 15 days. If the measure has a collective scope, if it affects uh, all employees or, or a significant number of employees, the company must follow a preliminary consultation period with the workers' committee. Employees, including senior executives, um, can challenge the company's decision of the pay cut before the court and also apply for determination of the contract with a right to a severance payment. My advice for executives in this extraordinary situation has been first, to ascertain if the company is really facing temporary financial problems. That is, if there is a real need for cutting a person's salary. Second, if the answer is positive, my approach is to consider reaching an agreement. My opinion is that in a framework of an agreement, the senior executive is in a better bargaining position, for instance, to reduce the duration of the pay cut as much as possible or to agree 
that the pay cut affects either the fixed salary or the variable salary, but not both. Thanks, Maria. That's that's really interesting. But Meryl, I know when it comes to discretionary pay, that can be a substantial portion of pay in sectors you commonly advise in. And I was just wondering what trends you've been seeing and, and what advice you're giving. Just a couple of sectors I'd like to pick out. One is the listed company sector, because depending on when your year end is, uh, you'll be governed, obviously, by what you've said publicly in your remuneration policy, and that will impact a senior exec's negotiating power on exit. But then if you're coming around to a year end where, you know, looking at annual report for June 2019, we're in a whole different world in June 20. There are issues there. Obviously, you have fiduciary duties, but interesting issues for boards. And we've given some advice both to boards and to senior execs on this about how you set your remuneration policy going forward and especially in relation to termination and what can be done. But perhaps more interestingly is on the regulatory side um, in the UK and I think to a large extent across Europe in relation to banks, building societies and investment firms and now hedge funds, corporate finance houses and some venture capital organisations We're governed very much by uh, remuneration codes to promote effective risk management. And obviously, all of those deal in in a lot of detail beyond um, the scope of this podcast in terms of the proportions of variable pay and the bonus cap and so on. But commonly, particularly in relation to those material risk takers who are covered by the senior managers regime, there will be a seven-year deferral and there'll be um, a three-year vesting. And there will also be either expressly or as a matter of policy issues of malice and clawbacks. So I think one of the trends we're seeing is uh, senior execs being accused of um, misbehaviour or material error, which allows the firm to trigger the malice and clawback provisions. So in case of malice, unvested deferred variable comp can either be reduced or with, you know, not paid at all. And in the case of clawback, even worse, um, amounts already paid can be clawed back. So I think it's important if you receive a challenge like that to consider whether or not it's justified and what the real reason for termination might be. And we've certainly seen a big uptick in senior execs needing to make use of the whistleblowing regime and challenge the true reason for their dismissal or their you know intended dismissal. That's really interesting Meryl and it brings us on to the the next issue um, that we were going to look at which is the whole issue of obviously job security uh, redundancies and dismissals arising out of this pandemic. Um, we're seeing a lot of organizations letting people go, executives it can be on the firing line, uh, particularly where salary, high salaries are one of the most significant costs to a business. So senior people are certainly not immune from this. Maria, what, what have you been seeing in Spain? In this month, uh, I have seen these missiles at middle management level, but not really at height management level. The dismissal of a senior executive is a more difficult decision and might require a resolution of the board of directors that is not always a mere formality at all. In Spain, it is important to know that senior executives do not have the benefit of all the usual protections other employees have. For example, 
A CEO might not have the right to receive unemployment benefits in the event of dismissal or any severance payment, except otherwise agreed in his or her contract. A general manager has the right to unemployment benefit, as do other employees, but in the case of unfair dismissal, the severance payment amounts to 20 days of salary in cash per year seniority, up to a maximum of 12 monthly installments. Whilst the severance payment for ordinary employees amounts to 33 days of salary in cash and in kind, up to a maximum of 24 monthly installments, and for employees with contract entered into before 12 February 2012, the severance payment can reach up to 42 monthly installments. Uh, moreover, a senior executive can be dismissed on an specific grounds that is a loss of confidence. In such cases that are the most common ones, the severance payment for the senior executives is equal to seven days of salary in cash per year of seniority, up to a maximum of six monthly installments plus three months notice. Another important difference is that uh, for ordinary employees, if the dismissal is declared null and void, they should be immediately reinstated with the right to be paid their salaries during the proceedings. That is, salaries as from the date of dismissal until the date in which they had been reinstated. And that can be uh, from six months to, to one year of salary. However, for senior executive, the consequence is for them to receive the severance payment, except if the parties agree on their reinstatement. So, senior executive uh, have a lower statutory severance payment in the event of a dismissal, except otherwise agreed in the contract. This is why the conditions for the termination of executive contracts are usually agreed by introducing the so-called golden parachute. So clearly, a good negotiation of the terms and conditions of a senior executive contract during the hiring process is the best weapon to protect them. Concerning current uh, dismissal situation in Spain, it's important to know that until next 30 September, it's uh, prohibited to dismiss employees or terminate contracts for objective reasons related to COVID-19. Senior executives are included in this protection, in my opinion. From my perspective, if a company doesn't comply with such a prohibition, the consequence should be that the dismissal is declared unfair which confers the employee the right to be paid a higher severance payment than in case of objective dismissal. Notwithstanding a recent and controversial court ruling of an employment tribunal, for instance, court, states that the individual dismissal of one employee last April was null, not unfair as expected, in execution of that legal prohibition. So we will see a lot of uh, controversy and a lot of court uh, fights uh, in order to ascertain whether the dismissal in those months during the pandemic are going to be declared unfair, that is my approach, or null and void. And the consequence for the company, mainly for ordinary employees, is very important. So we'll see. <laughs> Okay, so there's lots of stuff coming up there in Spain then and, and likely to be lots of litigation on these issues moving forward, Maria. Um, interesting that actually employers can't dismiss for COVID-related reasons until the 30th of September and there's a prohibition on that. And interesting also that senior executives 
don't have some of the protections that other employees have. So in Ireland, the position is different. I always advise my clients that they have two key sets of rights, the statutory and the contractual, when they're looking at a termination of employment. And the statutory protections in Ireland are strong and they apply to senior executives as much as they apply to anybody else. So there's a statutory redundancy entitlement and it's two weeks pay per year of service plus a bonus week. But the the week's pay is capped at 600 euros. So it's not a particularly valuable uh, sum of money for a high earner. But uh, the key thing in Ireland is that an employee with one year's service can bring a claim for unfair dismissal if they believe the redundancy was not genuine or fair. And the maximum compensation is two years gross remuneration. And that includes bonuses and benefits and other elements of the remuneration package. So a high earner could potentially have an unfair dismissal claim worth seven figures. And there have been some awards at that level, although it's unusual. And I know that's quite different to the UK, for example, where an unfair dismissal is generally capped at around £88,000. So it's not going to be a particularly effective remedy for a high earner. But from a contractual perspective, the UK and Ireland are pretty closely aligned in, in our approach Meryl, what are the things you'd be advising senior executives in the UK to check from a contractual perspective? Well, obviously, it does depend on the contractual provisions. But the two key areas that I go to when advising a senior person are in relation to their equity interests and in relation to post-termination restrictive covenants. So in a, in a redundancy situation, it's very likely that redundancy does mean that someone is a good lever under their equity scheme, both in relation to carried interest schemes and other share incentive schemes. But if you're in the situation where the company is saying your face doesn't fit or the board has lost confidence, we don't think you're the right person to take the company on to the next stage or the partnership, then you are faced with a more tricky situation because a constructive unfair dismissal is not necessarily a good lever event and therefore you would need to negotiate good lever status in order not to lose valuable equity interests. You also do need to consider how your equity could be affected adversely after your employment has ended and negotiate that up front if you can, because there are a number of uh, schemes out there where um, under the equity documents, restrictive covenants or non-disparagement provisions or even confidentiality provisions, if breached, could turn your good lever status into bad lever status and trigger clawback or forfeiture of equity. Also, of course, in relation to restrictive covenants, I know it's different in parts of Europe, but in the UK, it's possible to be kept out of the market or at least prevented from working with your previous clients for lengthy periods, six to 12 months, without any pay. And I think something that's commonly misunderstood by senior execs is if they're being made redundant, surely my covenants won't apply. That's not the case. They will apply unless you manage to negotiate a waiver or a reduction in the covenant 
as part of a redundancy leaving package. That's really helpful, Meryl. Yeah, and a lot of similar advice that I would give uh, to, to clients in Ireland. Mathilde, the position is a bit different in France. What entitlements do, do senior executives have when they're facing redundancy? Uh, so to, to begin with, I would say I would say that unlike Spain, we do not have a ban on termination for COVID-related reasons. Uh, what the government did was to try uh, to avoid or at least delay any terminations uh, by uh, strongly, heavily funding uh, the uh, partial activity. Uh, however, we are definitely uh, expecting a, a wave of terminations. And then also, unlike Spain, uh, executives have the same protection and the same rights as any other employee. There is only one, one employment law in France. So what the, the protection is, so when you, when you are terminated, you have one mandatory payment that you have in almost any case, unless uh, you committed a gross misconduct. And that is roughly one month per year of seniority. Uh, I say roughly because it's an average, because it really depends on the provisions of the applicable uh, collective bargaining agreement. And then if there is no cause, no solid cause for the termination, then you can go to court or try to negotiate for damages for wrongful termination. So until recently, those were open-ended and left up to the appreciation of the court, uh, which uh, as a result led to uh, very different results depending in front of which court uh, you are pleading your case. Uh, but now since three years, there is a scale. So there is a minimum of three months and a maximum which depends on seniority. Again, it's the same rule for uh, all kinds of employees. The scale gives you a minimum uh, and a maximum of months of salary to make up for your damage. So let's say you have 10 years of seniority, the maximum will be 10 months. If you have 30 years and above, the maximum will be 20 months. And what you can also claim for, and maybe it's, it's not the same in any country, is for emotional damages, emotional distress. Uh, so let's say you've been hustled away from the building in front of all of your colleagues, you didn't get a chance to say goodbye, then you can ask for uh, damages for uh, emotional distress. Uh, getting back to the cap, uh, some lower courts have decided that they are not bound by the cap because they believe that they can, they have to compensate for the whole damage and not only for the cap. So actually, we've seen some lower courts renting higher damages uh, than the cap. So there is still some uncertainty here, although the whole, uh, the whole purpose of this regulation was to create certainty uh, for the employers. This now leads us on to the, the kind of interesting area of equality and discrimination and issues of discrimination that have come up during the pandemic. Um, in Ireland, certainly we've seen that women are more likely to have taken on homeschooling and childcare as all the facilities uh, were shut for a very long time. So they may have been more likely to request a reduction in hours or pay, or they may have even taken a period of unpaid parental leave. As senior people now, this may not have been that easy to negotiate, but it may have been vital in some cases because people simply didn't have any other childcare. There is a concern now that when it comes to looking at redundancies, employers will be more likely to select people who have been less visible, who've taken some time off. And that would give rise to claims of indirect gender discrimination here in Ireland. But there's also protection on the grounds of family status in Ireland, which means essentially men and women who are parents of children. So if a man had taken on childcare and had taken time off during the pandemic as a result of that, 
again, if he was treated less favourably because of that, that could give rise to a claim of family status discrimination. Um, Mathilde, I understand the whole way of approaching selection for redundancy in France is quite different to how it might be here in Ireland. Can you explain a little bit? Yes, so, so when you're considering uh, terminating uh, some employees within the same uh, professional category, but you're only, only terminating some of them, then you have to select who is going to leave based on social criteria, uh, which are uh, age, seniority, family obligations, so basically number of children, and special needs, uh, should the case be, uh, as well as professional qualities. So you have to, to allocate a certain number of points based on, on those criteria, apply them. And then it gives you a ranking of who is the most protected and who needs to go first. So what is taken into account here is uh, the ability of the uh, terminated employee to find another position soon and over the business needs. That's really interesting because I think if you were to select on some of those uh, grounds here in Ireland, that that in itself could be uh, considered discriminatory. Because I think one of the concerns in Ireland and I think across a number of jurisdictions has been that we may go backwards now when we're into a recession, a difficult economic climate, advances and progress that were being made on equality and gender issues could go backwards. Meryl, I know you had some specific thoughts about that in relation to the UK. Yes, Claire, certainly that has very much been part of the debate over here that it looks very likely that things will go backwards. Um, One of the specific reasons for that is that whilst we'd had two years of gender pay gap reporting, uh, certainly with larger companies, one of the COVID measures was that that reporting did not need to happen this year and a number of companies took advantage of that. So whereas we were hoping that we would then have three years of data and that smaller companies would be drawn into that, I think that has definitely taken a backward step. And whilst the gender pay gap is obviously different from equal pay issues, often there has been data coming out of gender pay gap reporting that has been useful to women looking for information about pay across the organisation and then looking to challenge on the basis of equal pay. But possibly on a brighter note, the ethnicity gap, pay gap, has risen up the agenda following the death of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, which gained a lot of traction I know across the world, but very much in the UK. A number of organisations are looking at what they can do to promote people from ethnic minorities into leadership. And I noticed that McKinsey had published a 10-step plan setting out what they were committed to doing. And it's been really interesting to see the reaction across the legal sector and other sectors uh, in terms of commitments, internships, taking trainees from particular backgrounds and other innovative ways of trying to deal with the problem of ethnic minorities not having equal opportunities in the workplace. Well, that's that's really good to hear, actually, Meryl. It's good to hear that there's, uh, there's something, sort of a glimmer of hope, because a lot of what we've discussed has been uh, difficult situations and individuals facing 
interesting termination of employment and possible regression of, of rights. So it's good to hear that there's a bit of a glimmer of hope there. And actually, our, our final topic to discuss that we're going to come on to is really what does the future look like as a result of COVID-19, particularly for senior executives? In so many of the sectors we advise on, I think everyone across the globe has been working from home now for over four months. And we understand that some employers are not proposing a full return to the office for a number of months more, possibly until January 2021. So I suppose what I'm interested in asking you all is what is the impact of this on the future of how we work, particularly as it applies to senior people? And Meryl, uh, I was going to come to you first on that. One of the things we've been asked a lot about during uh, the lockdown is flexible working and how that will change and develop in the future. At the moment in the UK, it's it's a limited right. It's not a day one right. And that I think is problematic for particularly often for women with childcare or elderly care responsibilities. So people have to have been employed for 26 weeks before they can ask for flexible working. It's a right to ask, and the employer has eight reasons it can reject on based on uh, business need, client demand, colleague flexibility, and so on. So it's quite easy to reject a flexible working request, and a request can only be made once every 12 months. But I noticed that in Europe, there have been changes over the last few months. So Germany recently announced that it was going to give citizens the right to work from home. And I think Finland introduced a new Working Hours Act in January 2020. So there has been some discussion and debate in the UK about whether that's the way that we should go. I don't think there's been any proposals brought forward yet or a draft bill or anything like that. But I I do think there's going to be continued pressure on employers to allow people to work from home. And I suspect that very few organisations will require everybody to come in full time uh, five days a week once the lockdown ends. And actually what the law hasn't been able to achieve the COVID pandemic will have sort of achieved social engineering and moved on flexible working and in particular the right to work from home hugely in leaps and bounds in a way that would have taken the the law years. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, Meryl? Because things that people said were not possible before have been proved to be possible during COVID-19. So it's be difficult for employers to turn around and say that they are no longer possible or they're not going to be possible in the future. Um, Maria, what about Spain? Well, in Spain, there is uh, very different views regarding pros and cons of uh, remote or flexible uh, working. There are senior executives in favour and against, and that has created uh, some internal crisis in companies. So it's quite a topic now in Spain. In addition to that, there is a bill in Parliament to regulate remote working specifically, including the right to have flexible working hours. So now we are discussing or the government are discussing this topic with trade unions and companies. It's quite possible that in the third quarter of this year, a new regulation of remote working including flexible working, will see the light in Spain. The main issues and the main difference between the government uh, trade unions 
art um, companies relates mainly to in which cases the employee can decide to work from home, which cost should be borne by the employer, and if the employee working from home has the right to have flexible working hours. So uh, we'll see. If we truly turn into a model of a massive remote uh, world, as we have seen in this last month, there will be major changes in the way companies and senior executives organize uh, human resources. Many of the current policies will have to be rethought. Certainly, a remote working model will change our approach regarding physical presence in a place with lots of impacts regarding our view to business travel or the treatment of expatriates, which affects senior executives. If physical presence will no longer be important in the near future, we might need new rules, for instance, for conflicts in the applicable law, taxation, or social security in employment relationship with an international component. So I think that there are a lot of questions and we need answers. And uh, there is a very important topic uh, for all the organizations. And uh, I hope that employment lawyers will be a part of bringing solutions to companies and senior executives. Thanks, Maria. Now, Matilde, I know you also had some thoughts on the, the pros and the cons of moving to more remote working. Yes. So even before the crisis, uh, teleworking was encouraged. And about two years ago, it became a right, meaning that you can ask for it and it can only be refused for a solid business reason. Now, of course, with the crisis, uh, we see uh, much more uh, remote working than before, especially, I would say, with uh, subsidiaries of uh, American companies. These are the clients who uh, who, who will still uh, be teleworking until uh, September or maybe until the end of the year. It, it's, it's obviously a reaction to the crisis. And I think like any reaction, it is quite extreme. And I believe we will come back from it. I see many limits to teleworking. I think it's a real challenge for uh, senior executives to to motivate their team, to uh, keep the team spirit alive uh, without actual face-to-face meetings. In France, I think the the tendency is that people are already quite individualistic and remote working encourages that trend. Uh, rather than a sense of having a common goal towards achieving uh, business interests. So I think teleworking is actually a threat to team spirit. And uh, we, I, don't, I don't believe we are made to leave uh, behind a screen. That's really interesting. And, and what about business travel, Mathilde? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, so many of the senior people we've been advising who have kind of positions of global responsibility might have been traveling maybe every second week they'd have been on a plane at the very least. How do you think that might change? Oh, well, I am convinced that people will travel much less, uh, even when uh, things get back to normal. Yeah, I was just thinking that our own network of Inningard is a good example of this. We've had a lot of meetings that we normally we'd all fly to a location uh, from different parts of Europe and even different parts of the world. 
and we would meet there. So there's been last year we had a meeting in in Barcelona, but this year so far our meetings have taken place on Zoom. So it's certainly a kind of flexible and agile way of doing it, but perhaps it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a good idea to to meet in person some of the time. And I think we all look forward to the time when we can actually meet in person and benefit from the kind of the chats and the small talk that we engage in, the kind of the human element. And I think that's important in teams as well within businesses. Certainly in Ireland, flexible working hasn't been as common here or remote working hasn't been as common, but it would be very common in certain sectors for people to manage a team that's in the US, for example, or in India, if you're uh, in tech and a lot of you know US tech companies will have their EU headquarters in Dublin. So this would be quite common. But um, there isn't a right to request flexible working here as there is in the UK, except for parents returning from parental leave. And they have a right to request a change in working hours or patterns of work. But I think what we're seeing in Dublin now is people thinking about commute times, the cost of living in Dublin and how perhaps they could do their job two or three days a week from home and, and only come to the office a couple of days. And our Department for Business, Enterprise and Innovation has now launched a consultation on the issue of remote working. And they're looking at things from the perspective of the employee to a large extent, things like health and safety, psychological, mental health and well-being supports, ergonomic assessments, that kind of thing, the, the, the impact of working from home. So um, uh, it's an interesting time and it's going to be interesting to see how this settles down. As Mathilde says, Perhaps it's gone to a bit of an extreme and it will it will find a balance somewhere in the middle. So I think we've covered all the things that we were going to look at today. It's been a really interesting discussion and I'd like to thank all the panellists for sharing their expertise from the different jurisdictions. That's um, Meryl April from CM Murray in London, Maria Jose Sanchez, uh, Garcia of Augusto Abogados in Barcelona and Mathilde Uwe-Weil of Weil & Associate in Paris. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Claire. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this Inangard Executives podcast. For more information, please find us at inangard.global forward slash executives.